Um, I'm honored to be here with you guys. We hear so much about what's happening in Huntington Beach because of you and this church campus. And we're excited to see how it continues to grow and change. And, uh, you know, it's awesome to come and speak on the heels of summer, right? Because everybody's a little more hopefully relaxed. I don't know. Is everybody a little more relaxed? Everybody get a little summer break? Who took vacation or took some time, hung out with family? Almost everybody, right? Summer's this beautiful time that tends to sort of recalibrate our hearts and our lives. And there's some amazing things. I had two weeks off, so I spent some time with my family. And you get to re-engage in relationship. And you get to, you know, we went to, um, to Hearst Castle, my wife and I. So we got to experience that. And it was amazing to see uh, who his mother was. And the way that she loved him and, and planted these seeds of this dream that didn't take place for 50 years ago. And what it did, it gave me a huge appreciation for my wife. Because my wife just has this amazing sense of adventure. She's constantly just getting our kids outside and exposing them to just a broad worldview about what's going on. So I fell in love with my wife in a new way. I got to see my kids. I have three kids, two boys and a girl. And I got to see them helping each other. You know, I'd see my boys, you know, going into my daughter Cozy's room and playing horses with her. You know, and she's outside. And one of the things we did is we dug out all of my old matchbox cars this summer. I have like 500 that my kids had given me from the time I was 7 to 10. And we saved them, so we put them all out, and everybody got like 50 Matchbox cars, and we'd trade them and stuff. And, you know, there's these beautiful moments about, you know, about vacation and about reconnecting. But amazingly enough, there's also these incredibly painful moments about vacation and reconnecting too, right? I mean, in so many ways, it's what's right. It's what feels great about the world, but in so many ways, it's what's horrible. Because if you've been on vacation, especially vacation with kids, you know that it's a ton of work. I mean, it's a, fun is work. And you learn that with vacations and with kids. And so we thought it'd be fun to go camping. And so we have this big van, and, it, you know, it's pretty simple, but the, the back makes into a bed. And we're like, let's go camping. So we found this little campground, and uh, it was kind of spur of the moment. So we're like, kids, pack a, pack a bag, grab the dog, let's go. And so we found this beach camping place up north of Santa Barbara and uh, stopped there. And we got there, and it was gorgeous. You come over these hills, it's super remote, and you drive down, and we open the doors, and the wind is blowing like 50 miles an hour. And we're like, this isn't so awesome. All of a sudden, you know, sand is flying in our faces and cars and the kids are walking around covering their eyes. And we made the best of it for the night, but we said, this isn't fun. So we split. Taught my kids how to surf. I'm thinking, ah, this is a beautiful summer. This is the moment. And we go out and uh, we go in the afternoon and all of a sudden the sun just disappears and it gets freezing cold. And, you know, I've got the kids and you don't tie a leash to them or anything. And so you're pushing them into these waves and the board goes all the way in. So basically all I did is swam to the shore and back like for an hour trying to teach these kids how to surf. And they got up. So there's a moment of beauty, but a moment of pain, too, at the same time. And it's interesting the way vacation and the way life works that way, right? And if somebody said, I'm going to rescue you and take you to the most amazing place you could possibly imagine. I'm going to rescue you and give you the world you'd always dreamed of. I think for so many of us, certainly for me, it would be vacation, but without all the hassle. You know what I mean? It would be the relationship. It would be the beauty of it, all those things. And so we're going to look at God's word today, and we're going to look at a story of God's people that are experiencing and living in this same tension and see what God wants to say to us and see what we can learn. First, some backstory. So the people have been living, the Israelites were living in captivity in Egypt for over 400 years at this time. So no living person has any memory of freedom. No living person has any memory other than slavery and just day after day creating and making bricks and building this huge empire for these evil Egyptians that are whipping them and destroying them. And all they have is food and provision and a place to, to stay, and that's it. And so day after day, you've got to believe, they're, pl- they're just praying for a rescue. And they're saying, gosh, when is this going to come? So eventually God comes right through Moses, and he delivers these people out of captivity. 
And they have this great promise of the promised land, Cana. Canaan, right? Like they're thinking vacation without the hassle. This is beautiful, where everything awesome is supposed to take place. And so that's where we pick up the story. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Numbers 21. And we're going to look at verses 4 through 9. We'll just take it a couple verses at a time. So the first thing we're going to do, look at Numbers 21, verses 4 and 5. So here's the deal. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Okay, so we're, we're two verses in, right? This is, you know, what they had imagined and anticipated is freedom, right? So all of a sudden they go, Yes, God's going to deliver us. He gave us Moses. Here we go. This is beautiful. And all of a sudden, this is not what they imagined. This, you know, they're thinking this is a three-week journey. This right here is 38 years into a three-week journey. And so you could imagine, they're like, what is happening? You know, the whole rug got pulled out from under us. Since they began their journey, all they've done is eat this food that God has provided called manna, which literally translated means, what is it? That's, they didn't know, and so they decided to call it, we don't know, what is this, which is genius. So... That's it. Imagine eating the same thing, three meals a day, your entire life for 38 years. Because that's what they've done. Is there anything in your life that you could eat three meals a day and that only for 38 years? It may be if coffee was a food, it could be possible. But in this case, it is not possible. So they're saying, what is happening? We've eaten the same food. What's going on? They've been walking in the desert. They're getting tired. I mean, remember, they're not walking down, you know... The beach, you know, with a nice ocean breeze and everything, this isn't awesome. It's the desert. It's the wilderness. They're out in the middle of nowhere. And so they start saying to Moses the same thing they've been saying since the beginning. You know, this is 38 years in. If you remember, they got out, and the first thing they did is come up against the Red Sea. And they started complaining and saying, you've brought us here to die. And God does this crazy miracle, gets them through the Red Sea, and they're like, oh, yes, this is awesome. And shortly after that, they're saying, this is horrible. You brought us here to die. It's this cycle that, that these people have. They think it's a nature hike, you know, but they're like, we're lost. This is brutal. So they start saying something that many of us would assume is obvious, right, because we know the story, and that is there's no food and there's no water. And all we have is this horrible manna, what is it, that we're supposed to eat. And, you know, when the ancient people even heard that you're going to leave Egypt and go out into the wilderness, they would have said, what are you doing there's nothing there, right? We can assume that. If we've been there or you just said, hey, I'm going to go hang out in Blythe for like 40 years, <laughs> right? And not the city, but like outside of it, you'd look at me like, all right, there's nothing there. There's no food. There's no water. And that's what they're saying. They're getting out there, but you can see that their hearts just start changing and they start complaining and they start becoming ungrateful. It's almost like they desire to be in slavery more than the freedom that God has provided, just because of the circumstances and just because of the conditions. They're saying, God, we came out here to follow you, and all we've gotten is more hungry and more thirsty. And there's this peculiar comfort that you see them almost wrestling with, right? In the definitive provision of food and shelter in a horrible environment like Egypt, where they didn't have to think about those things, and they start questioning, what does that look like? And you just see the wrestling and the tension, Because when you go out in the desert, oftentimes, really, there is nothing. 
The only thing there is you and God. And so, really, that's the tension that they start wrestling with. What's better? Slavery, where we have all of our basic needs met. We don't have to worry about what that's happening. And yeah, we get whipped and beaten, and we got to make bricks out of nothing for these Egyptians. But I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from. And I know I've got a place to sleep every night. And I know that I'm going to be cared for. Versus freedom in the wilderness with God. Relying and trusting and being dependent on him. I mean, think about it. Remember, these people have been living in this environment with nothing for almost four decades. For almost 40 years, they've lived on the outskirts of Blythe with nothing. But God has provided for them. He's given them food. He's protected them. He's delivered them. He's done crazy miracles all before this, right? Part of the Red Sea. Gave them meat when they wanted meat in the context of quail. They had no water. So they hit a rock and all of a sudden water gushes out. God had done everything, 40 years, in the middle of nowhere. But they're alive, they're cared for, and they're in relationship with God. They're as free as they can be, but they're complaining. And it's not enough. Because complaining is often rooted in our forgetting. You see, when we start to forget who God is, and when we start looking at the circumstances that we exist in, that's what tends to shorten our attention span. And so they didn't look at the story of 38 years and what God had done and how horrible it was in Egypt and what sort of environment they lived in there. They forgot all those miracles. They forgot the provision. They forgot the food. They forgot the water. They forgot everything that God had done. And so they started complaining. We have nothing to eat. We have miserable food. God, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. And so it's crazy because what happens next um, is challenging, to say the least. I mean, it's going to mess with us a little bit. Look at the next two verses, verses 6 and 7. So after all this complaining, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Please pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prays for the people. So remember, they're complaining, there's nothing to eat, everything's horrible, they don't like the menu, but yet God is providing everything they need, so God sends poisonous snakes to bite the people. And in that time, you can imagine, right, there's no study of reptiles and snakes and things like that, they don't know what they're doing, so people die these really slow, painful deaths because of these snakes. And it says God sent these snakes. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of a jarring thing. Right? Because that's exactly what the world believes, and even we believe as followers of Jesus oftentimes. Like, really, a loving God? A loving God allows this? A loving God even sends venomous snakes into our lives, into his people, into their camp to bite them. So, a couple things. The first thing is the word sent in Hebrew is shalach, which can also be understood to mean to let loose or to allow or to release. So the implication is almost that clearly they were in the wilderness and in this desert environment, so there already had to be all kinds of venomous snakes around them all the time. So it's almost like there had been this protection that God had given them, which they had never even seen or realized. And so what God did is release or allow or remove the protection and said, fine, if this is what you want, then this is what I'll give you. And so he allows these snakes to start doing what they wanted to do in the first place, which is bite the people. 
And a lot of us only understand God in these terms, right? We tend to think that, you know, God says, do what I say or I'm going to send a snake to bite you. You know, and it's a pretty typical understanding. You'll find a lot of people who get burned by the church and say that's exactly the way it looks. Do what God says. Live in those boundaries or he's going to get you. We tend to think that that's the way God operates, that he threatens people that don't follow him with death. And that's a great question, right? Is that true? And we get to wrestle with that. And I was thinking about this, and I got to think about it a little bit in the context of my kids. And talk about the allowing and the releasing of protection. And I thought, you know, in any relationship, especially with those we have with our kids, but, you know, even in friendships or whatever, when kids are small, we place these really tight boundaries around them. And we sort of guard them from, from everything. But as they grow older and as they begin to understand more and more about who God is, who their parents are, who the world is, what it looks like, we start to sort of expand those boundaries. And we trust them more and more. And we believe that they're going to make good choices and what that looks like. And so... We do this with our kids as they grow. We start to remove some of the protection. Does that mean we love them any less? Does that mean we, we want them to die? No. It means that they're growing up. They're maturing. And what happens when kids violate those boundaries as they're growing up? What do we do? We go, ooh, we've got to put these things back in place. Because that's not where you are in terms of your character and growth and development. It's not based on love. We're always present in their lives. We're always loving. But yet the boundaries and the removals of the protection tends to change depending on where the people are. And that's kind of what God's doing here. He's simply saying, guys, I have been guarding and protecting not only these miracles I've been doing. Do you see? Almost four decades of your life. I've been watching over you. But you're forgetting. You're forgetting who I am. You're forgetting that I'm loving. You're forgetting that I'm kind. You're forgetting that there's so many things in this world that are out to get you, that I am protecting you from, that you don't even realize. So are there benefits? What are the benefits of the snakes in our lives? If you look in verse 7, right, what do the people do? The people came to Moses, and they said, we sinned when we spoke against you, right? So pray that the Lord will take away these snakes. Sometimes the benefit, right, is to remember who the rescuer is to remember who's really in charge, to remember. They have this honest moment of, wow, we were wrong. We were wrong, and we're sorry. God, please, you know what I mean? Sort of restore this relationship. And what do they ask God to do? They ask him to take away the snakes, <laughs> right? That's what any of us would do, you know? I don't know about you, but most of the prayers in my life, when things start going sideways, God, take this away. Take this away. And that's exactly what they say. God, take this away. So what does God do? Look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Does God take away the serpents? Does he take away the snakes? Nope. He gives them a way through. He gives them a way to be healed in the midst of their pain. I mean, here's the deal. They're going to continue going. He does not take away the snakes. There's people that are still getting bit. And I have to believe there's people that are choosing not to look at the pole. There are people that are still going to choose. No way. That seems too crazy. There's no way I'm doing that. And they would choose to die this slow, painful death. 
God gives them a way through. He gives them a way to be rescued. He gives them a way to be healed, but it is not what they asked for, and it is not in the way that they would have chosen. And so the question for us centers on the true nature of what does rescue look like? What does being healed look like? What does freedom really look like? You know? I mean, people are dying. And, you know, he tells Moses to to make something that will heal them in the very shape of the thing that's killing them and attacking them. And so they're being healed, but is is that really the rescue? Maybe the real rescue here is, is the heart of God and what he's doing, which is finding a way to redirect his people back to himself. He's finding a loving, gracious, healing, freeing rescue to say, guys, I do, I love you. And here, I'm going to provide a way through this. And so he's redirecting their hearts and their minds and their lives back to him. The ultimate picture of being rescued isn't that people stop worrying about snakes. The ultimate rescue is that people redirect their trust and their faith and their belief back into who God is. And so is it possible that that's what God does, right? Not just with these people, but even with our lives. Is it possible that he, he takes these incredible, uh, incredible, painful things that are happening in our journeys? That he even allows them, right, for our benefit. The benefit being to redirect our hearts and our minds and our lives back to him. And I know it sounds crazy. You're saying, are you telling me that God is going to use pain to get my attention? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. Because sometimes that's the only thing that will get our attention. Sometimes it's not the provision of God, the protection of God, the miracles of God, the deliverance of God, the saving of God, the healing of God, the power of God that we get to see. Sometimes none of those things actually get our attention. Sometimes what gets our attention is is pain. And I mean, we know that that's a foregone conclusion in life. Everybody in this room has experienced pain, sadness. And I'm not talking like difficulties in in sports or tests or exams or anything. I'm saying grief, the loss of relationships or people close to us, just evil in in our world, loneliness. It's not trying to avoid these times in our life, but it's about how we respond to these times in our life. Because God's inviting us into something beautiful to heal us, to free us, to redeem us. And it isn't just the healing from the situation. It's about returning our trust and our belief into who he is and what's right and true about that. And so a lot of times, I don't know about you, but when you hit things, the first question you ask in a difficult situation is often, why? Why is this happening? Why? Why are these people doing this to me? Why did this take place? Why? And perhaps what we should ask instead of why is maybe what? What is God trying to teach me in this? What do I need to learn about myself or about who God is? What do I need to remember? And maybe the other question is to ask is who? Who am I depending on? And who am I trusting to lead through whatever this is in my life? Is it me? Is it a spouse? Is it a relationship? Is it a sibling? Is it a counselor? Is it, or is it, is it God? Am I really believing and trusting that God is going to lead me through? 
The story's about people that sort of lose their first love and they forget. And what distracted them in the beginning when they started complaining, remember, is they forgot. And they started to paint this picture that the life they had of enslavery and everything was better than the life being and living in relationship with God. And that's the dangerous subtlety of this preferred life that we tend to paint for ourselves, at least I do, about having a vacation life without all the hassle and all the work, is it actually leads and directs us to a life that doesn't require God, if you think about it. It's a life where everything's good enough, and we slowly cease to need him in our life. And it's not instant, but it becomes this slow fade over time. And oftentimes the only thing that jars us back into reality of who God is and who we are is a moment of pain. And the most difficult thing is trusting God in the midst and in the wilderness, in the midst of the snakes and in the midst of the evilness, to believe that God is good, that he is faithful, that he is loving. And he proves this. Flip over to John in the New Testament. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Jesus is speaking to a man named Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. He's a religious leader, a devout religious man. He's attempting to restore Israel, right, to obedience and centeredness around God and everything. So Jesus, as he's talking to him, he refers to this story, the story of the Israelites. And he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a way through. And it's not just about eternal life, and it's not just about eternity. It's about the here and now. So that whatever is ailing you in this life, whatever the evil, whatever the snake, whatever you're being bitten by, The way through is Jesus, and the way through is a relationship. And there's an eternity beyond it where none of these things exist. But in the midst of venomous snakes in this world, here is your way through. And the way through is by looking at and trusting and believing in Jesus. And he's pointing to this world where we can be healed now. So what if God, I don't know where you're at today, but what if God actually is trying to utilize whatever pain exists in your journey to sort of redirect you back to him? What if he's inviting you and sort of recalibrating your journey? What are the things you're complaining about in life, maybe, is another way to look at it and consider what God's doing. What does that look like? What's it going to take for us to look at Jesus Do we need that? Do we want that? Do you? There's this great invitation, right? The whole story of God's word is this story of a creator. The created man and woman in his own image. And said, this is good, this is right. But that got broken because of our own sin, because of our own brokenness. So there's evil in the world. And all of that happens. And so the Bible just becomes this relentless pursuit of a loving God to redeem and to restore the relationship that got broken. But clearly, it also demonstrates not a way through, but a fact that we get to choose. We get to choose 
how we live our life, what we trust, how we respond to whatever exists in the world. So this morning, I, we're going to remember Jesus gave us this great tool called communion to remember. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come and the band to come out. And in a moment, we're going to take some time. But if you would, as we do this, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for a second? I just want you to reflect just for a moment. And I want to just ask you a couple questions. Maybe do what the Israelites did and just have this moment of sort of honest reflection and confession. To deal honestly, and to let God know where we're at today. So for those of us in this room, uh, maybe we grew up in the church, maybe we've chosen to follow Jesus and to trust God with our life, and maybe some of us have sort of begun this journey of a slow fade away from God. And it wasn't probably an instant decision or a choice, but all of a sudden as you sit here this morning, maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And you recognize and realize that some of maybe the the pain and the confusion and the sadness in your life is something that God is wanting to use to help redirect and recalibrate you back to him. Maybe for some of us in this room, we've never been to church. Or maybe we have and, and we just haven't chosen to really accept and grab a hold and trust and believe the story of God and his love for us and his son Jesus. Maybe for you, for the first time, you can consider and look at maybe the pain in your life, the addiction or the hurt or the grief or the loneliness or whatever it is as a tool that maybe God is using to invite you to be in relationship with him. What has your attention this morning? Just take a moment and consider that. Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us and that you care enough, God, not to let us just wander away, but you care enough to find ways to redirect our hearts and our lives and our minds back to you. Thank you that we can never run outside of your love or your boundaries or your reach. So we thank you for that this morning as we remember that truth. God, thank you for this story that challenges us and invites us to see even the pain and the grief and the sadness and the evil and the confusing things in our life. Um, God, is something that grabs a hold of us. And then how do we respond to that? God, I pray that you would help us to honestly listen to your voice this morning. To return to you whatever that looks like in our hearts and lives. To trust you whatever that looks like in our journey. And God, as we remember the fact that all this is possible because of your love for us, you loved us so much, God, that you gave us your son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for our sin, for our brokenness, for our weakness, for our failure. We do nothing except simply receive and trust and believe that you are who you say you are, that you are good and that you're faithful.